Welcome back to Around the Room. I'm Daniel Ennis. I'm excited for another episode of Ask an Expert. In this segment, Dr. Janet Pope from the University of Western Ontario weighs in on common topics and answers listener questions. And today we'll be talking about lupus. I know I've learned a lot from our prior discussions on Raynaud's and arthralgias versus arthritis and methotrexate. If you haven't heard those episodes, I'd encourage you to give them a listen. Even if you're a master clinician, there's probably a few pearls in there that you'll find interesting. Janet, welcome back. How are you? Great, great. Glad to be here, Daniel. And I, as I mentioned earlier, um, people are actually listening to these podcasts, so that's two thumbs up. <laughs> right, yeah. That's pretty exciting, actually. So uh, I've heard you give some pretty incredible update talks on a number of subjects in rheumatology, and today we're going to be talking about lupus. And I want to start off with some discussion around diagnosis and then move on to management and monitoring, and then hopefully end with uh, some of your thoughts on what's new and what's in the pipeline. So in terms of diagnosis, I think I the, the place that I struggle the most is perhaps with like the more mild end of the spectrum of lupus. Once someone has like nephritis or vasculitis, it starts to become a little bit easier to know even what you're dealing with. But it's kind of these milder patients that that I find I diagnostically struggle with. So specifically, uh, I have difficulty differentiating some of these mild symptoms. So I'm hoping you can help me clarify, what would count for you as a lupus related rash? And how do you ask patients about them to get clear answers to the question? Right. So first of all, everybody, and sometimes their dogs who have lupus or don't, everybody in their dog has had a rash, right? So you want to witness it. And you want to be certain because sometimes rosacea is tough to tell, but classically rosacea won't spare the nasolabial folds as a for instance. The other problem is people take pictures and you're sometimes looking at a close-up. You don't even know, is this an arm or a leg or what are you showing me? And that makes it kind of difficult. So in order, in my opinion, at least, in order to make any of these criterion count, you want to actually have seen them either on a picture or you want to see it or someone you trust because uh, we do misclassify people and to get the wrong label doesn't do a service to anyone, I think. So um, a lupus rash, so male or rash is... Um, if you see it and, and you really are certain it's a male or rash, then the likelihood of not having lupus is like almost zero because a male or rash is a classical lupus rash. Mm-hmm. Subacute cutaneous lupus, that could be a rash all over, maybe looking like um, erythema multiforme, um, often photosensitive, often rho positive. Those patients, 50% of them are probably systemic lupus and 50% aren't. So you're going to look for other criteria on all these patients anyway. But in that, you sometimes I say possible systemic, and then I just keep saying what I see. And every note says possible systemic lupus, including rho positive, ANA positive, photosensitivity, and a subacute cutaneous lupus rash. And you go, well, isn't that four criterion? But it's just if they have nothing else no cytopenias or anything, no proteinuria, et cetera. You don't want to mislabel people. Discoid rash um, can be classical if you've seen a lot of patients, but might not be. There's this numular stuff that's raised. So in order to really diagnose discoid, unless if it's scarring on the scalp, bleeding, um, on the angle of the jaw, row positive, photosensitive, often with scarring alopecia, unless if it's short of that kind of classical, I think most discoid ones for the first time around probably needs a biopsy. And that is how a lot of referrals come to our area 
And someone sees them, sends them to Durham. Durham does a biopsy, says it's classical discoid and sends them along. And just buyer beware. If someone says it's discoid, um, usually Durham isn't going to say it is when it isn't. But you do want to get the path. And usually it's somewhere on the system because you're looking for um, certain classical findings. So you're looking for uh, breaking apart of white cells. So leukoareosis, perivascular cuffing. And if you're lucky that they've done immunofluorescent staining and C3 or other things might be staining and that all that is really helpful and supportive. Then there's a bunch of other rashes, lividoreticularis. So again, probably every kid's been modeled at some point. Adults usually don't um, have significant lividoreticularis not related to an infection or something like that. So livido can go with many things, but um, including being regular healthy person, but certainly is helpful. So there's some of the rashes. So I think you take it in totality. And I guess if you're trying to really think about it, you probably in your mind want to say witnessed, you need a yes to that. And then am I really certain possibly certain or uncertain. And I do see people with lupus who have weird biopsies that someone tells me is lupus and it's like Jesners and stuff. And every time I hear a patient with Jesners of whom I see within the lupus spectrum, um, I have to always, I think it's neutrophilic dermatoses, but it's not sweet syndrome. It's like, I'll never diagnose Jesners. I don't know what it is. And if I still need other stuff for lupus, right? So I think you just have to look at all that. And, you know, a positive ANA we know is the bane of all our existence because everybody's positive till proven otherwise. So probably one in three women right now in our area and only one in a thousand will have lupus. So um, an ANA alone, we know never makes a diagnosis of anything. Okay, so so you go in rank order, unwitnessed, witnessed, and then witnessed with systemic manifestations is really like the kind of grading of kind of importance of of the rash. Probably, and witnessed and classical, am I really certain? Or is this sort of anything? It's sort of like a bad lupus and a bad dermato um, Mm -hmm. after going out in the sun, watching their kid's soccer game, which is no longer canceled, lucky for the kids. Um, You know, they come in and it's photosensitive, both of them. So you could see somebody new and you'd say, well, you're either dermato or lupus. Whereas if the rash was more mild, you can usually quite easily differentiate. And do you have any pearls on differentiating photosensitive polymorphous, sorry, polymorphous light eruption versus a a photo distributed lupus rash? Right. So I think it's tough because um, there is there is a percentage of people who are photosensitive and it's probably a few percent. And again, lupus is only about one in a thousand women and 10 times rarer in men. So um, I want to get a history. So first of all, if it's an older man, I'm not really putting lupus high on the list. And if they've had it all their life, almost all their adult life versus just over the last two years, they started losing hair, which is a pearl we can talk about too, losing hair, getting frequent sores in their mouth and getting um, photosensitivity and they're row positive, which is um, SSA, then I think the latter is far more likely. Um, A lot of the photosensitive people though, um, that have all sorts of uh, other uh, syndromes associated. They're often on their lower legs, always extensor surfaces because that's what sees the sun, but they don't come up with a male or rash. They're not usually V-neck. They would be more, I think, widely distributed, but it is tough. Mm-hmm. And and so you mentioned two other items that I wanted to talk about. So maybe we'll, we'll move on to oral aphthous ulcers. So when do they count? When do they not count? Is there a number that you care about? Is there a location that you care about? 
How do you decide? And, and you know what? Excellent questions. And it's very difficult because if someone has, first of all, they have to be witnessed. And when I talk to the med students, I always say, you don't have to put up your hand, but who in this room has never had an oral ulcer? And like no one or one person kind of has <laughs> to put up their hand because of course, everyone's had oral, oral ulcer. So oral and nasal, I weigh higher than oral alone because nasal ulcers aren't that common. No. Um Maybe in little kids who have an illness or picking their nose or something, but not usually, right? <laughs> or an adult picking their nose. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Adults too, but they usually don't, or cocaine, <laughs> you know, if we want to get graphic, right? Other things yeah. in their nose. Um, but basically hard palate is helpful because that is very, very uncommon. Say if someone has had a lot of fruit during um, our, our plentiful seasons, uh, uh, they might get oral ulcers, but hard palate is helpful. Um, multiple is helpful out of keeping with um, what they used to have and occasionally timing. So only more recent onset with other symptomatology evolving. And um, I don't know about the general population of women, but some uh, women with lupus will flare various manifestations right before their period. Mm -hmm. So around they, they know their menses is coming to get oral ulcers, but I don't know that that would rule out uh, I don't know what happens in Bichette's as a, for instance. And then the guidelines or the, the clinical wisdom always used to be oral ulcers, multiple, often multiple recurrent, no other explanation, often painless. I'll tell you, they're often painful. Uh, maybe I don't look hard enough if they're pa the painless ones, because I do right. masking. I look in all the mouths of all the lupus patients at every visit, but they're often painful. Actually, that that's really great to know because I think that the classic teaching that I had as well was painless ulcers, and that's not quite been my clinical experience. Right. My limited maybe, clinical maybe experience. they forgot to ask them when they were writing the text. <laughs> right. Okay. And then, so to the to the other point that you made was about hair loss. So, how do you how do you differentiate pathologic versus normal hair loss? Um, I find that to be probably of of the ones that I asked the hardest to decide how. Um, how relevant it is to a diagnosis. Right. So in a lupus patient, um, they don't have to, but many will have a pink scalp when their disease is active. So you can have alopecia without a pink scalp, but if you don't have a really fair haired person in their scalp and they haven't been out in the sun to like be sunburnt up there, having a pink scalp is often lupus disease activity. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, hair loss has to be witnessed. So everybody I ask off, not everyone, but many people say, yes, I have hair loss. Well, we all lose hair in the shower, uh, combing or brushing our hair, et cetera. So a couple of questions that I'll ask the little clinical pearls are, um, you're, you tell me you're losing hair. So you pull back your ponytail and you have to do an extra turn on the elastic or the breaths fall out. Now, what have you, maybe then you really have lost hair, but the clinical pearl is when you wake up in the morning, is there hair in your pillow? Yes. If so, how much? So three or more hairs just as a rule of thumb, because in honesty, I don't have any hair on my pillow. I don't think ever when I wake up and yet, you know, I brush my hair and have lots of hair coming out like a regular person, I think. Right. The other thing is um, stress, nutrition, uh, postpartum, uh, iron deficiency, maybe. There's a lot of, and I don't know if it's true on iron deficiency, but there's a lot of other reasons to lose hair. So you want to rule out th um, other things. When I'm looking, I want to say patient reports hair loss. So it's my scale again, not witness, patient reports it, not witness. So no, patient reports, but I don't see it. Um, yes, and I see some, or yes, I kind of, like I don't disbelieve them, but I think it could be a clinically relevant change in their thickness of their hair. But often I'll just say, do you mind if I 
nicely, pull your hair. So I'll just literally get three fingers, run it through some strands of hair. It's easier if it's a woman with longer hair. And if three hairs come out in my hand, that is not normal unless if I've unfortunately pulled out a knot, which I would know not to do, right? Like, you know, you can, you can do that in your own hair and pull out a knot if you have long hair. So that to me then is is true hair loss. So, um, and again, I don't count it. I say uh, patient reports hair loss, not witness, because I don't want to go, um, that's not a criterion, by the way, but I don't want to tick features that anyone could have and misattribute. Um, you don't want to misappropriate right. and give the wrong label. Right. And I, I have definitely um, seen patients who in, in clinic are like, oh, so we're, we're moving beyond just the history. They're like, I have active hair loss. It's happening right now. And like, like, see, and they show me their scalp and I, I just, I just can't see it. Uh, probably just because I'm meeting them for the first time, but it looks to me like the thickest head of hair I've ever seen. And I think that that can be somewhat distressing too for a patient when I think the impression is of like not being believed or like, I believe you, but I'm, I'm going to write it down with this asterisk beside it. And, and they feel like it's it's a distressing symptom. So I think um, kind of the ongoing clinical follow-up is really important there. Yes. And, and the reassurance, right? The reassurance right. that although we do have subacute cutaneous lupus, discoid scarring lupus, uh, kind of patients who might actually go have big ball patches and need a wig, Mm-hmm. Most of our patients without the scarring rashes on their scalp, most will not ever have enough hair loss to need um, like a hair piece or a wig. Some will, by the way, but most won't. So I often say, well, this is the common um, feature that many, many of my patients complain of. And I think we just wait and watch and see. But most of the people you would see in the waiting room, as a for instance, or most of my, my experiences that um, the, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority will never have that other people will notice it. Something right. to reassure them. So I'm not saying you're a liar, but I'm also saying that this will probably be to others looking at you clinically irrelevant. Perfect. So before we go on to management monitoring, any other pearls for diagnosis, anything that you see, uh, maybe a rheumatologist or, or internist family docs do wrong that you'd, you'd want to correct? Yes. And it's not only, it's not just do wrong. I think you have to just make sure, um, which is difficult during our telemedicine days, you have to see a person in person to really know uh, what's going on. So a couple of pearls, inflammatory arthritis can be very subtle and can be uh, sort of puffy fingers, tenus synovitis and puffy fingers, even if they're not like a mixed connective tissue disease or RNP overlap. Look for uh, those little dilated capillaries at the periungal area because um, that's often a patient with lupus with Raynaud's, but they don't have to have Raynaud's. And that to me is um, a very telling sign that it is probably a CTD. Um, So connective tissue disease such as lupus and many other things are on that list. Um, I think, uh, and this will be heresy, but I think for monitoring and following, um, to repeat all the time compliments and double-stranded DNA, I get it for research, and so that's important, but um, often the tests take a long time to come back. Uh, For most people, it doesn't change your treatment decision. I would just say be wary of ordering stuff unless if you think it might change what you do. If I already know your disease is active, I'm going to treat you. If I know your disease is clinically quiescent, then the only reason I might want to know if your complements are lower, your double-stranded DNA is positive, is if I'm going to consider backing off on therapy. But if you're only on hydroxychloroquine, like those ones you said on the mild end of the spectrum, maybe an NSAID PRN, don't need glucocorticoids, haven't even needed um, azathioprine or MMF, then 
to keep doing the complements and double-stranded DNA, although I know it's heresy, is probably not a value add and financially. And um, mm-hmm. Carly Houston did uh, publish and some other trainees with me uh, looking that basically uh, once you have three normal complements in a row, none of which were ever abnormal um, and or three double stranded DNAs in a row, the pretest likelihood of the next one being off becomes extremely low and the number needed to find on cost goes really, really high. So to find one abnormal. Now, does that mean if someone's contemplating pregnancy, I don't order stuff? I absolutely order stuff because now it might be too people we're looking after so to speak right 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 so so there so there are exceptions to the rule and you know some people always have low compliments and uh Urowitz and others have uh, published on the um the clinically uh quiet uh, serologically active or clinical quiescence serological active patients and uh, we don't know what to do with them but just don't try not to over treat your patients will thank you if you don't over treat treat right. don't over treat okay so maybe we'll then move on to some questions around management and monitoring. And we, we actually have a question from Dr. Antonio Avina Zubieta, who's a lupologist out here. And he has a question for you. So he's interested in your thoughts on hydroxychloroquine and the risk of prolonged QT syndrome. Should we screen patients? Is that cost effective? And Antonio already knows the answer. So he's baiting me because he's a very, very excellent researcher as well as a very smart uh, clinician. So um, the QT interval stuff is real and it's virtually 100% irrelevant. And I say that other than if you were going to use really high doses, zithromycin, quadruple dose of some of the SS or SNRIs that are way, way beyond normal dosing, then you might want to have buyer beware and think about it. But in all our usual drugs at usual doses, and all the other patients drugs at usual dosing, just forget about it. And there was a really nice study presented, it was an oral presentation, um, at the ACR, and I think it mm-hmm. might be published now, or else it's accepted at ANR. I think, but basically looking um, at um, changes on ECG of patients on hydroxychloroquine with lupus, and some had RA as well. A large population study, but. There is a caveat. They excluded known baseline coronary artery disease. And they would be the patients you think that if you prolong your QT, you get tersat to point, that arrhythmia is probably going to be lethal. And they're probably Mm -hmm. more apt to get it if they have blood flow issues around the bundle of hiss, et cetera. So I think you just have to um, realize that that was extremely reassuring in the days of uh, hydroxychloroquine, very high dose, and azithromycin, very high dose that did not treat COVID, but people were trying. That was a bad combo. But I think in our patients, just forget about it. And I ignore the uh, pharmacy uh, uh, findings of they say, please do this. Or I just fax back. Um, it's a thank you, but it's a relevant thing and stop scaring the patient. I say it very diplomatically. <laughs> of but course. You can also look um, the CRA Therapeutics Committee has some guidance on hydroxychloroquine and safety, including ECGs. So it's a good place to look for guidance to back you up as well. And I'll defend you in court. Okay. And and if you have a patient who already has a known prolonged QT, so you have, let's say, a gentleman with a, a QTC of 560, would you avoid putting someone on Plaquenil if, if they already have that? I guess the good thing is I wouldn't be smart enough to know it. I usually don't track down their old ECGs and it's not on my review of systems. Hey, do you have a prolonged QT? So in honesty, (laughs) ignorance is bliss. So I probably wouldn't know. But if someone had a prolonged QT interval, I'd probably say to them, I do think this drug has more benefit than risk. 
Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to monitor ECGs, but if you would like, I can do one in a month after you start the drug or even in a week or two, just to make sure nothing's changing. But if it is changing, I'm frankly not going to stop the drug anyway, because <laughs> there's an error of the test, right? You, If For you're sure. 560, it could be 570, then 540. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. That That's uh, super helpful. We'll be right back to Around the Room after this brief message from the CRA. Did you know that membership with the Canadian Rheumatology Association offers outstanding value through knowledge sharing, accredited educational offerings, advocacy, and research support? Members receive access to free webinars, programs, and discounts to events such as the CRA Review Course and Annual Scientific Meeting. Members also receive complimentary subscriptions to the Journal of Rheumatology and the Journal of the Canadian Rheumatology Association. Trainees can join for free and are eligible for educational and training opportunities, travel bursaries, and much more. These are just some of the many benefits of joining the Canadian Rheumatology Association. And if you're an existing member, spread the word to rheumatology colleagues who haven't joined yet. They'll thank you for it. For more information, please visit our website at www.room.ca. And now, back to Around the Room. So here's a question from another lupologist from here in BC. Uh, She asks, I'd love to hear Janet's take on the low-dose steroid argument. Some recent studies suggest less flares in patients that are maintained on low-dose steroids. So I'm wondering what you think about that. And I'm fascinated as well. Yeah. So uh, again, two sides of the story. Number one, RCT showing that if you try to withdraw steroids in patients who are very clinically stable, doing, you know, very stable for a long period of time, steady state, if you randomize to lowering their um, prednisone, uh, even slowly, you do uh, almost double the flare rate and fairly quickly, in fact. And over the year, there was about twice as many flares. However, um, Marie Urowitz, Daphne Gladman and others, some of their uh, training have recently published on um, an article showing that, yes, you can still slowly um, taper to try to withdraw glucocorticoids on the longstanding lupus patients. And they had um, the same or maybe even controversially, I'll say, maybe even slightly less flare rate. I just saw it on Twitter. So I I, I hit the article. I have a save, but I I only read the abstract. So I'm, I'm admitting I haven't read the whole thing. But in whom are you going to withdraw steroids? People that say, yes, you can do it. People that are willing to keep going down further so they're not getting um, achier. Because in honesty, a lot of uh, glucocorticoids are really their analgesic. And people feel out of steady state, kind of feel um, as though their adrenal glands aren't working right. So achy, uh, their pain worsens. And sometimes their flares are these soft things without objective findings. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, uh, prednisone does so much damage. It accounts for after your first year or so, it accounts for more of the um, SLIC, the SDI um, cooperating clinics uh, damage index. It accounts for more of it than lupus activity over time. Um, although steroids are a surrogate, especially high dose for doing poorly in that you had really active disease or you wouldn't have gotten it. So there's some confounding on who gets them. So um can you still try to lower prednisone over time? Yes, you need the patient to work with you and you have to realize that there might be failure. It's like getting someone to quit smoking. Most successful former smokers have failed several times. So Mm -hmm. if you look at it that way, you just say the reason we're doing it 
is not because it doesn't help you and it's not about today or tomorrow, but it's because 25 more years of even three milligrams a day more is a huge amount of uh, potential side effects. And right. if you let people know it that way, you can do you know, as slow as you want, one milligram alternate day every three months. That's going to take you like 15 years if you're on five milligrams to get off maybe, but you're actually in the long term doing them a favor. Right. And and would you include in the, so specifically around the people who are serologically active, clinically quiescent, would you consider that a group that you would be more reticent to taper the steroids or all comers you try? Right. So in the latter group, I would say depends on how bad their manifestations were before. Mm -hmm. And it also probably depends on, although I'm not checking it all the time, are they always uh, serologically active, clinically quiet, always meaning the last, say, four times I've seen them over four years or two years or something. So the like RA, the, the, the highest chance of sustained remission is deep sustained remission. Mm -hmm. So I think that's true in lupus as well. Okay. Um, what are your thoughts on the value of hydroxychloroquine levels in lupus management? That's also a question from uh, one of our lupologists. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, so it's a really hot topic, and I, I would like to get some experience with it. So um, there's a few things in the literature that are, I think, important. So uh, lower hydroxychloroquine levels are associated with more flares, um, non-renal and renal. Lower hydroxychloroquine levels are probably also associated with non-adherence. Um, in BC, they found that um, not filling your prescription as much for hydroxychloroquine led to increased mortality, but maybe you weren't filling because you had other big time comorbidities, or maybe it was a biomarker of non-adherence on all sorts of things, right? Mm -hmm. So right. it's right. So that's where it'd be important. The other side of that coin is if you have a really high hydroxychloroquine level, we do seem to find it's correlated to increased retinal toxicity. So I would probably lower the dose in a person, even though I'm trying to dose according to body weight, because some might be rapid metabolizers. Who knows? I don't know. Um, so I think it would be helpful because I'd probably try, try to target people in the high normal range with induction, mid normal range for a long time and low normal. But that's the world according to me not the world according to <laughs> and and do you have access to the test in uh, no. in london oh, no. okay okay but you, have, do you do you yeah. daniel no. no no we don't no we don't um but kind of along these same lines then would you it, i think you were alluding to this would you consider tapering hydroxychloroquine in long-term stable patients uh, well, we know on every study, including yet another recent one on uh, the recent ULAR, that hydroxychloroquine is correlated to better survival. Now, right. hydroxychloroquine is almost solely prescribed in the rheumatologist and general internist office and not the nephrologist office, at least around here. So the nephrology patients have worse renal survival, obviously, <laughs> and probably worse overall survival. So you have to look at there could be confounding in that. However, in large population studies, from Scandinavia, BC, US, and elsewhere, uh, hydroxychloroquine does seem to um, be a surrogate for better survival. So with that in mind, the people in whom I might taper it are uh, poor tolerability, questionable retinal changes such as uh, corneal deposits, 
um, they're, they're either in or out. They used to not correlate with retinal toxicity, then they did, then they didn't, now they do again. So they increase if you have corneal deposits, it's probably showing that you have used hydroxychloroquine for a long time and time and disease, like duration of use is a risk for getting uh, retinal toxicity because the people in whom we stop it without tapering are people with real retinal toxicity. So OCT, bilateral, central macular change is irrefutable. One eye, don't believe it, send them for someone else to get like get an opinion. If the optom sees them, say, well, monocular, if the person sees out of both eyes, I wouldn't expect that. So you got to really confirm it because it's important. Right. You stop the drug forever. So I might say, hold the drug, let's get an ophthalmologist because they know more about it than I do. And maybe then the optom and I uh, combine know about the actual retinal toxicity at the back of the eye. Okay, that makes sense. All right, so then we'll move on to kind of the the third section of of this talk, which is what's new and what's in the pipeline. Can you kind of give us a rundown of what to look out for? Right. So something new that might change my practice that I only did when someone was contemplating pregnancy is a wonderful investigator initiated RCT multi-site of patients really uh, quiescent clinically for a long period of time with their SLE randomized to uh, stop uh, Celsept, mycophenolate mofetil, or continue. And they had a really well-designed study looking at flare rate, time to flare, etc. And it was non-non-inferior, meaning in my mind, that means it was the same. So there wasn't a big price to pay in those long-term users of starting of um, stopping mycophenolate mofetil. In the real practice, would I stop it? I'd probably taper and watch as I went. If you're on three mm-hmm. grams, or a lot of people are maintaining on two thousand milligrams, so maybe you go to fifteen hundred for a few months, etc. So every few months, maybe going down and um, right. you know giving some guidance on when to go back up. So that has changed my practice, but. You know, we all know clinically that if a patient says, can I lower my drug? I answer, when did you stop or lower? And the trainees (laughs) think I'm like a bit daft or deaf, but it's because I know what they really mean. They mean I lowered it. I got away with it. Please authorize it. Or I actually stopped it and I want, I want your approval. And then next time I'll tell you, I actually stopped it. So I can, we can all read between the lines. Um, But if someone had very serious SLE, um, you know, one or two serious organs involved, I see no reason to try to um, discontinue uh, mycophenolate mofetil. If you were on it and it made you better and you tolerate it and you can afford it, you're not having side effects. Um, what's wrong with just, you know, a tincture of it? And maybe I'm going to homeopathic doses if they're just on a gram a day or 500 milligrams. But I always tell them it might be their anchor. Just like your Mm -hmm. insurance policy is your hydroxychloroquine, your anchor might be your little bit of uh, MMF that's remaining. So that's one thing. I think the other thing that's really important is um, steroids are out of fashion in that we should really think twice for the minor manifestations for giving oral prednisone because some patients do get hooked on it. We have to remember it's an analgesic, just like NSAIDs help pain, SEDs help pain as well. So steroids do help pain. So you have to realize that, no surprise. And we do have a lot of comorbid chronic pain, poor sleep, fibromyalgia, poor mood, and glucocorticoids might sort of boost some uh, slight improvement in those areas, although not appropriate treatment, of course. So just Try not to use glucocorticoids if you don't have to. If you have to, try to consider what about just a short burst or 
even better if you can bring them in and give like an intramuscular um, 80 milligrams depomedrol or something so that the patient can't get a renewal on the prescription very easily, can't start changing their dose at home. So just think early, do they really need steroids or not? Obviously, the other um, area of glucocorticoids is you want to pulse a real uh, active uh, GN class uh, uh, three, four kind of patients with a gram of solumedrol daily times three. So that's still in, but then a more rapid taper to lower doses maintenance and then trying to get them off by several months to a year looking at how they're doing their um, GFR, looking at their re- ratio of uh, proteinuria, or, um, albuminuria, creatinine protein ratio, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What are new things really are um, lupus nephritis, I think is a disease that will soon no longer be appropriate for most patients to be uh, glucocorticoids and monotherapy. So I really think there's enough data now that in general, two drugs can be combined and give better results. And it's not that we can't make people better. It's that the relapse rate is higher and that um, the chance of getting renal impairment after years of hyperfiltration is still there if you don't get them good quickly. So there's Mm -hmm. predictors that if your proteinuria isn't a lot better at three months, you have higher chance of renal failure over the next few years, not immediately, but it's, it's, um, it's um, sensitive, but it's not specific either way. Like you might not get a chance of renal, like your chance is only a certain chance of renal failure. And mm-hmm. like two drugs, what am I thinking? So MMF plus tacrolomus, MMF plus voclosporin, but since we don't have that, probably plus cyclosporin, because voclosporin and cyclosporin are the one's a derivative of the other. One's a lot more expensive and obviously not on the market yet. Um, and then looking even beyond, so belimumab, amphrolimumab, I'm not saying it right, sorry, um, that might be appropriate. And then the uh, rituximab-like drug that is obin, obinutuzumab, if I'm not saying that right either, I apologize. All of those have um, some degree of renal benefit and they're in general added to mycophenolate mofetil. And mm-hmm. then maintenance MMF is better than AZA, but obviously if someone's contemplating pregnancy, MMF is out, I'd switch them to azathioprine, watch them carefully, the best chance of good outcome with your lupus uh, and uh, getting pregnant is obviously all the good high risk care, following blood pressure, putting them on aspirin, keeping hydroxychloroquine on board, and really then um, monitoring very carefully. So that's the best chance of good outcome. But of course, the biggest predictor is, do you have active disease around time of conception? Because then you already have active disease while you're pregnant. So you want right. three months of them to be as quiet as possible, but not always uh, serologically quiet, but clinically uh, calm disease. Mm-hmm. So has that become your uh, standard of practice now to give kind of dual induction therapy in addition to glucocorticoids? It has. Now, sometimes when I monitor, I'm treating with a nephrologist, they're saying, why are you doing that? And I just say, well, the data suggests that we have a time to improving proteinuria, time to getting um, their their hyperfiltration improved, etc. That if you can improve that, you do improve long-term outcomes. And that makes sense. It's like a window of opportunity kind of idea in lupus nephritis, even though they don't talk about it that way. So in general, yes. Now, if someone has very modern 
mild uh, lupus um, nephritis. Their GFR has stayed fine. They have only a small degree of proteinuria, but biopsy is positive, but they look pretty well. Maybe I'll just do traditional mycophenolate mofetil. If things aren't going really well by two to three months, really well, meaning uh, everybody's very happy with where they're at, then I might even in those patients add. But someone who's quite sick, two drugs are going to be better than one. And if they're really sick, they often don't absorb. You know, mm -hmm. if you have five grams or 10 grams a day of proteinuria, anasarca, nephritic, nephrotic, those patients, they might even need, in my opinion, IV cyclo for induction and then switch them quickly when you think they're going to absorb better to oral MMF because MMF does replace uh, cyclophosphamide as the right. standard. Yeah. Well, Janet, uh, as always, it's, it's always a little bit terrifying to talk to you because of how much I learn. Um, so I wanted to thank you uh, for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with me. And uh, thanks for coming on. And we'll have you back soon. Great. Thanks, Daniel. And I'm so glad questions came in. Keep them coming. For sure. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. To ask questions for our upcoming Ask the Experts segment on scleroderma pearls or to suggest future topics, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at C-R-A-S-C-R Room. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Kevin Bagenoth. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work, and of course, an extra special thanks to Dr. Janet Pope. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fontwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.